Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most bizarre, the most eye-raising, mind-boggling homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, for this season, season seven, the focus is on murder cases where the murderer pled not guilty by reason of insanity or not mentally competent to stand trial because of a history of documented mental illnesses. And when I say mental illness, y'all, I don't mean that the killer or murderer, they just had a form of like some pent up rage and they just snapped and they got mad one day. No, for the most part, these killers were severely, severely mentally deranged. Like they had histories of well-documented mental illness, not like you and I. And they had at least one stay at a mental institution, whether that was voluntary or involuntary, but they were somehow allowed to live and function in society when they clearly showed signs that they probably should have been committed a long time ago before, you know, things got out of hand. Mostly all of the murderers for this season, they have been sentenced indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins, which is the only maximum security, the only real maximum security institution that we have for the criminally insane in this state, meaning, um, there's no real chance that they will ever be released back into society because their murders were so bizarre, so outlandish, so senseless, so pointless, so in their own world. And the murderer, or basically the killer that I'm going to profile for this episode is the mentally ill murderer, 28-year-old Jamiria Hall. And just like in all of the other episodes that are in this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that does need special attention, basically because not a lot of it, or not a lot, if anything, is going on with the case. And uh, last season, season six, because I profiled 10 unsolved homicides where the victims were female, it's only right that I pay the same amount of attention to the men. So for this season, all of the unsolved homicides that will be profiled, the victims will be male. And for this episode's unsolved homicide, the focus is on the shooting murder of 23-year-old Brandon Spruill. Now, for this, now I don't even know how many of y'all already noticed, um, you know, if, you know, my listeners or the people that really, like, know me, but I am so much into true crime and suspense and gore and why things happen and why killers do what they do and all of that stuff that... A few years ago, I had a job as a crime scene cleanup technician. <laughs> I mean, I, I made it all the way up to foreman. Basically, what a crime scene cleanup technician does is we clean up crime scenes, um, decomposition deaths, any type of biohazard waste, 
massive infectious disease breakouts like C. diff or, you know, if I was still into it, we probably would have had some COVID cleans. But sometimes we do like massive hoarder cleans, like which was always fun. Uh, a lot of people didn't like it, but you'd be surprised what you could find, uh, you know, doing a hoarder clean. To me, it was fun. I absolutely loved this job. I mean, it was one of the best jobs I ever had because for me, um, I got hired right on the spot. I mean, can you imagine me <laughs> not getting hired on the spot? The dude, my boss actually told me, he was like, look, you're actually perfect for this job. I mean, it wasn't like people were like dying to get this job, no pun intended. But you literally had to be a certain type of person to be able to clean up brain, blood, and guts and maggots and flies and stuff like that I could do it and eat a pizza at the same time my, my boss saw that in me immediately after like my first interview second reason why I loved this job was because I was front and center with destruct not destruction but gore death blood truth reality everybody else saw it as you know a negative something they wanted to avoid but when something like this happens to a person um they actually used to love seeing us because they couldn't handle it you know we did what most people didn't want to do or couldn't deal with i cleaned up everything from bloody messy suicides to brutal homicides assaults stabbings whatever you want to name it. I remember we cleaned up a shotgun suicide that was done inside of a small storage shed that people put their stuff in, like, you know, like a, uh, what do you call it? Um, I don't know what they call it, like the storage shed. Like if, when you're moving and you just want to keep some stuff or whatever, but this person apparently must have got evicted or something, and they must have been living out this shed or whatever. But anyway, like an easy storage place. I think that's the name of it. But one of the... Um, it was like one of the bloodiest scenes I had ever seen in my life. Somebody just shot, blew their brains out with a shotgun in a store shed. And once I cleaned up a suicide where the guy blew his head off with a shotgun and my partner and I found like the guy's nose <laughs> in the mini blinds that was in his bedroom. It, it That was normal stuff to us. We did a cleanup where um, our Boston... Massachusetts where a guy died in his bathtub he was submerged in water and he was like an obese man and oh my god I swear to god honestly I am not lying to you when you think you have lived but you have not lived until you're like unclogging a tub drain because it's stopped up with decomposing freaking Jeffrey Dahmer like flesh and bone I mean, we had the new guy pick out, fish out an ankle bone out of the drain. But anyway, I did all of this while pregnant and getting my bachelor's in criminal justice through an iPhone. All of these jobs were fun and interesting to say the least, but none of them were as memorable as a, I think the worst one I've ever done was a three-week decomposition death that was in Frederick, Maryland, where another obese man, he had died in his bed and it had been like maybe four weeks 
and this was like the middle of it was very hot i don't know it was the middle of summer and his body fluids leaked and seeped so much out of his body and for so long that they soaked his his body fluid soaked all the way through his mattress the box spring the floorboards under the bed the insulation in the flooring under the bed the floor to the living room the insulation in that flooring fluids traveled all the way from the living room floor to the ceiling in the basement which also had to be removed we completely demolished that house with uh just body fluids and everywhere it was just a mess i mean i remember all the black dead flies that were all throughout the house on the windowsills out of that home that's how we um you know as a technician how we knew possibly how long a person had been dead in their house was by the level of dead flies and for this house i remember the flies were like piles and piles of like black carpet all throughout the hall with floors but nothing nothing if you can visualize everything that i'm telling you nothing nothing on this earth nothing prepares you for the horrendous smell the horrendous smell of death it's a unique smell that you will never ever forget like never nothing ever comes close to this smell not body odor not like the smell of a dead dog or the smell of hot trash or the smell of somebody's breath none of that the smell of a decomposing body is a smell that cannot be ignored those of us who have smelled it before they know it's a smell that you will never forget and i say all of that to say this this next case that i'm going to discuss it begins with just that an odor of death that could not be ignored well actually this case begins actually like a lot earlier than the smell of death in an apartment building 28 year old jamiria hall was a single mother of two she had a boy and a girl uh, 8 year old uh davin thomas thompson thomas was the boy and 6 year old denira thomas was the girl now we live in an era where everything is posted and everybody's on social media and although jamiria she appeared to be like a loving and doting mother of her children to the outside world cuz she posted pictures of them all the time on her social media page apparently there were issues from the very beginning with her mental health in 2018 according to articles in Baltimore Sun Jamiria went through some sort of like mental breakdown where in October of that same year Jamiria was staying with her mother at their home in the uh 100 block of Up Manor Road in Emerson Village with her kids and for apparently unknown reasons Jamiria set family f- family pictures and other family related items put them all in a couch and set them on fire she also put some family photos in a frying pan and set that on fire too which is out of the ordinary y'all i mean this is not normal just you know i'm snapping or i'm i'm stressed out from being a mother i mean that's kind of like a little out there it's like she disconnected the smoke detectors in the house she cut the wires to the smoke detectors 
and she took the batteries out so that the smoke detectors wouldn't even go off. Jamiria did all of this while she was in the house with her kids. That's more than just a cry for help in my opinion. I mean, she put not only herself in danger, but deliberately putting her kids in danger too. Jamiria did leave out of the house with her kids before the fire got out of control. But the next day, the police found her with the kids at a local hospital. And when the police questioned her with the child abuse unit, and she admitted to like what she had done by setting the house on fire, the police arrested her and charged her with first-degree arson. And they also threw in a charge of child endangerment. Her kids were taken from her, and instead of them you know, being placed in foster care or anything like that, they were placed with their paternal grandparents, which was the kid's father's uh, parents, while Jamira served one, her one year in prison for the arson charge after she got sentenced to five years in prison with all but one year suspended. Jamiria was also ordered to pay $3,000 in restitution fees for the damages that the fire had caused the home. Now, while Jamiria was locked up, the kid's father's parents had them, but when Jamiria got out of prison, the first thing she wanted, she wanted her kids back. So she filed all of the appropriate paperwork, you know, did all what the court told her to do. She did all of this to start the process in getting her kids back. The court scheduled a hearing date um, basically to address her concerns and to address her getting her children back. In her court filings that she wrote to the court, she wrote, um, I have been sole physical custody provider of both children. The father has been absent until my previous incarceration. He has tried to keep them away. Um, now who knows, who knows where the father was, but when they had, uh, the hearing to address any of this, the father never showed up and because he never showed up, never bothered to answer the complaints, never did any of that to fight for, you know, his kids or dispute any of the, anything that she was saying, the court ordered that the kids be returned back to Jamiria. I mean, it was that easy. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know why it wasn't looked into more about why she would deliberately start a house fire, you know, especially burning with family pictures and stuff like that. And especially like, you know, when her own kids was in the house. I mean, if these actions don't scream out, you know, dysfunction or a big cry for help, I don't know what other sign that they needed to see. I don't know what does but anyway after Jamiria was able to get her kids back she made moves to try to rebuild her life she started a podcast she moved into an apartment in the 500 block of Coventry Road in the Beachfield area of southwest Baltimore um Baltimore City there Jamiria also tried working on her relationship with her kids as a single mother and in her podcast, which she called Be More Charming, Jamiria talked about the different issues and challenges that she went through and dealt with with raising her kids alone as a single parent. She said stuff like, y'all been driving me crazy, but I love y'all. And she talked about, um, 
she did talk about the previous arrest that she had in 2018 and she called that like her that whole incident like her mental breakdown and she said stuff like I have such a big heart that if my heart gets any type of rejection I crumble I would just have a meltdown that's something I need to work on my anger my anger develops my anxiety my anxiety develops my stress my stress triggers my depression I fall into depression when I cannot control the stress. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot when you really think about what she was saying. Now, Jamiria also talked about how she wanted to start a clothing line of t-shirts and beauty products. Um, You know, sounds pretty sane to me. I mean, sometimes her podcast had like recordings of where she read like her kids' bedtime stories she always focused on her love for them. She bragged about her kids like all the time on social media. And she constantly updated her feed with pictures of them on her Facebook page saying stuff like my two little best friends. They're perfect to me. A bond that can never be broken. Being your mom was never easy, but you can't agree it was worth it. Always love you to the moon. I mean, it's like... Sometimes, I mean, she wasn't always positive. Sometimes Jamira was honest and she posted about her daily struggles with her mental health saying, in the beginning of the 2020 pandemic, I found myself going back into depression. I was not able to work because my family needed me at home. Every month I had supervised probation office visits. I suffer from, that I suffer from myofacial pain syndrome. PTSD has always taps me on the shoulder and triggers my anxiety. Now, myofacial pain syndrome, it's like a painful disease, a painful disease that causes like pain in different parts of your body, like your head. It could be in your neck, shoulder, arms, legs, and lower back. Myofacial pain syndrome is kind of like, um, fibromyalgia something that you know that females get except it instead of that which fibromyalgia whatever it is I know I'm pronouncing it wrong but it attacks both the muscles and the joints in your body but myofacial pain syndrome affects only like the muscles in your body now both of these disorders are painful and they can cause like mood swings and sleep problems and depression and anxiety because you live in constant pain all the time. It's a shitty way to live. And nobody, absolutely no one thought that Jamiria was so depressed, so lost, so out of it, that she was even capable of doing what she did. And like I said earlier, it all started with a smell. A weird, strong, pungent smell of death and decomposition that the neighbors thought it was just a dead animal in the dumpster or trash that just wasn't picked up or something. But after a few days, the odor got stronger and stronger, even though the dumpsters had been dumped. The neighbors also noticed that the smell seemed to be coming from inside one of the units in the apartment building. And they started complaining to the maintenance department about the smell or, you know, the rental office. The rental office sent a maintenance worker to the apartment building to check on things. And on Tuesday, August the 24th, 2021, 
the maintenance worker used a key to go into Jamiri's apartment where the smell seemed to be coming from. And when the worker went into the apartment, he walked directly into an unforgettable, traumatizing crime scene. Jamiria's daughter, six-year-old Daneria Thomas, was found face up in the bathtub with a piece of clothing still wrapped around her neck. The little girl had also been drowned and strangled to death. Jamiria's son, eight-year-old Davin Thomas, was found in the home face down in a sleeping bag. He had a trash bag over his face and neck. After the police were called and they showed up at the scene with EMS personnel, they rolled the boy over face first and they discovered that Davin had also been stabbed with a large knife in the right side of his chest and the knife was still sticking out of his body. Mm-mm-mm. Both of the kids had been dead for at least a few days and both of them were decomposing. Jamiria was nowhere to be found not on the scene at all, and an alert was immediately put out for her whereabouts. The police discovered that Jamiria was most likely in an Uber, and they put the Regional Auto Theft Task Force on the case to put an alert out on the Uber that Jamiria was in, and apparently that was headed towards Philadelphia Road and Rossville Boulevard in Baltimore County. The Regional Auto Theft Task Force immediately found the Uber and Jamiria was immediately taken into custody. And when the police or investigators questioned Jamiria about what they found at her apartment, Jamiria confessed to everything. She was arrested and charged with two counts of first degree murder, first degree assault, and reckless endangerment and held without bail at Baltimore Central's booking facility. The detectives, neighbors, family, everybody needed answers. And when the detectives started questioning like the neighbors and family members to see if they could provide insight, any clues, any information at all as to why a seemingly loving mother would brutally slaughter her, both her children, there was no real explanation. Several neighbors did report to investigators that Sometimes they did hear like Jamira yelling at the kids and approximately five days before the kids were found dead, um, neighbors said that they had seen them with their mother. One neighbor reported to detectives that she heard one of the one of the kids screaming, mommy, no. And a few days after that, neighbors saw Jamiria throwing out the kids' beds, like mattresses, their toys and clothes like they weren't coming back. The neighbors also noticed that Jamiria's car had been repossessed and towed. None of them could say one bad word about Jamiria's mothering skills other than one neighbor reported that he would see her sometimes sitting in a car all day with a guy out front. But like I said, um, like I said before, you know, she was all on social media and to the outside public, it seemed like Jamiria was a very nurturing, attentive, and caring mother. The investigators also talked to Jamiria's family, and her mother told the detectives that the last time she talked to her daughter 
was the day before the kids were found. And she told her that uh, Jamiro said that she was in a hospital and that the kids' father had taken them and that he was taking care of them. But when the detectives questioned the kids' father, he told them that he hadn't seen his kids, but the last time he had seen Jamiria, he said that she had been walking in West Baltimore in the area of North Avenue and Bloomingdale Road, mumbling and screaming to herself. Another sign of something not right. He told them that she seemed to be either drunk or high or both. And he just went about his merry way, unbothered, apparently. You know, after Jamiria told the judge that she had previously gotten treatment from a psychiatrist for anxiety and depression, the judge ordered an immediate mental health evaluation. After Jamiria's mental evaluation, at first she was found competent to stand trial, but after another mental health evaluation, on September 17, 2021, Jamiria was found not competent to stand trial, and later, in March of 2022, Jamiria was again found not competent to stand trial because of her mental illness, and because of that, Jamiria was committed indefinitely to Clifton T. Perkins Forensic Hospital. The murder of her kids completely devastated their paternal grandparents, the ones who had the kids while Jamiria was serving her one-year prison sentence for the arson, the arson conviction. And the kid's grandfather released a statement to the press that said, my babies might still be alive today if they hadn't taken them. And you know what? That's, prob that's most likely true. To be honest with you, the sad thing about it is that he is probably right. I mean, like I setting fire to a house when the kids that's there, that says a lot. And then, um, you know, unhooking like the smoke detectors and stuff like that. So they can't be saved and you can't be saved. That's basically planning a death right there. That's planning a death. Um, and they were such a rush to give her back, her kids back. I mean, that's a little, that's, that was to me, that where the fault, part of the, the fault, the blame should lie. Um, she shouldn't have gotten her kids back that soon, especially not supervised or nothing like that. Where the fuck was the father? Like, you see your baby mother mumbling down the street, you didn't think something was wrong? And plus, you didn't go to court, you didn't answer. These would be the ones that be complaining about why they gotta pay child support. You know, you didn't do anything, you didn't show up, you didn't answer, you didn't respond, and then you wanna complain? You know, what a mess. Why was, you know... Ugh, she burning pictures of family like that sounds a little little suspicious well I won't say suspicious but you know I'm not one to talk about family issues but um there must have been some deep family issues if she's burning family photos in a frying pan I always thought that like what happened you know for her to be that distraught to burn pictures that says, that screams I had a rough childhood or something about family I don't like. To me, it goes to, and this, this case also goes to show that everything you see on social media is definitely not real. You know, you look on her Facebook page, which I did look at, it's a million pictures of her with kids and, you know, they're positive and stuff like that. But 
she was suffering mentally the whole time. That shows you that mental illness is real. It's not like a disease that you can physically see or I, I can't even say that you, you physically can't see, but it's a mental health disorder that causes people to act a certain way. And if you ever wanted to know why they act a certain way, chances are they're mentally ill and, you know, need to get help, need to see a therapist or um, need to address what issues are bothering them, need to get some cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy consists of when you're digging deep into your childhood and trying to restore memories that or issues that may have been blocked. A lot of people need to really do that because they've been holding on to trauma that they really need to let go that allows them to live. You know, um, this because I know this case is fairly new. It's only like two years old, but already this one is definitely going to go down as one of Maryland's most notorious murders. Well, Maryland, one of Maryland's most notorious child double homicides in Maryland's history. You know, just because of the brutality of it. And also because, um, in my opinion, like I said, um, this one could have been avoided. It's, it's, it seems like these cases happen a lot in Maryland where CPS or whoever was involved or judges, you know, these type of cases when mistakes were made turned out to be, you thought it was a small mistake, but it turned out to be a fatal mistake. So I do believe that this one could have been avoided. But like I said, because of the brutality, the double homicide nature of your kids, regardless of whether or not she was found not competent to stand trial, this one is definitely, you know, was definitely considered to be one of Maryland's most notorious murders. And now it's time to move on to this week's Unsolved Homicide. And like I say in every single episode, although a lot of attention and focus is given to homicides in Maryland that were noteworthy and may have received a lot of press, a lot of attention, may have talked about it for a while, um, this podcast also shines a light on the many homicides that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention or press, if any attention at all. These killings or murders are so common in this state that they don't really always make the news. They don't make Fox 45, WBAL, or Murder Inc., or nothing like that. Sometimes when a person gets killed in this state, you don't hear nothing else about it. They might talk about it for a day, and then, boom, somebody else got killed. And it's like the number of unsolved homicides um, in this case, I mean, in this state is completely staggering. Homicide detectives, they can't do it all by themselves, obviously, especially when they are outnumbered and kept busy all the time. And what happens to, you ever wondered what happens to the cases where nobody is talking at all? Where, or cases where um, detectives don't have any evidence, not a drop they don't have nowhere to start or the cases where because of the victim's past, you know, maybe they was a drug dealer. Maybe they was this or that. Nobody is taking there. It seems like nobody is taking that case seriously or nobody is talking to detectives. Detectives, it seems like they're not really trying to investigate because 
the victim quote-unquote had it coming what happened to those type of those homicide cases do the killer simply just get away with murder it just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides not because nobody cares anymore but because the public simply just forgot all about it it's like we've become immune to homicides in this state i bet you the family still remembers you know and on this podcast although i do talk about cases where the case did receive a lot of attention and notoriety on the flip side a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the attention that they deserved and with that being said this episode's unsolved homicide is the shooting murder of 23 year old brandon spruell 23 year old brandon spruell was a local basketball star who started out playing basketball at saint francis academy and walbrook high school where he started and helped lead the school to two city championships one in 2005 and one in 2006 playing for the walbrook warriors after graduating from high school brandon moved uh, on to playing basketball at harford community college where he also continued his education the father of a two-year-old daughter brandon had zero criminal record he stayed out of trouble and tried to stay focused on his dreams but on the night of monday july the 23rd 2012 shortly before 10 p.m brandon and three of his friends were hanging out in the 1500 block of mckean avenue at the corner of mckean and baker street in the sandtown winchester neighborhood of west baltimore city which is his usual normal hang hangout spot for them when suddenly two black men approached the group from behind and told them that this was a robbery at gunpoint the two men ordered all three of the men to get on their knees and when they did brandon was shot in the back of the head after shooting brandon the two men took off running after the police were called and showed up at the scene brandon was pronounced dead the other victims were not hurt physically after brandon was shot and killed his friends and family organized a candlelight vigil that was held at walbrook high school's football field where they shared memories hope and prayers for the suspects to quickly be brought to justice brandon's former high school coach at walbrook released a statement that said guys come up with all kinds of ways to bring attention to them to himself but i would say brandon spruill brought attention to himself by demonstrating character and leadership he was always doing positive things always had a job since high school and worked to work to earn his keep it's a tragedy and i'm just crushed by it it breaks my heart completely i this this kid was had a job since he was in high school always making his own way a child has been robbed of a father and a brother has been robbed of his only brother all of this was 11 years ago 11 years ago y'all and still there have been 
there haven't been any arrest or closure to this case. So if you have any information at all in regards to who may have committed this horrible, horrendous murder, then Baltimore City Homicide Detectives would like to speak to you and you can give the Baltimore City Homicide Cold Case Division a call at 410-396-2100 or you can give them a call at 1-866-7-LOCKUP which is Metro Crime Stoppers. You can also send them a text message at 443-402-4824 and you can reach them via email at homicidetips at baltimorepolice.org. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore City Cold Case Division at 410-396-2100. You can give them a call at Metro Crime Stoppers, which is 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can send a text message to 443-402-4824. And you can also reach the uh, detectives at homicide tips at baltimorepolice.org you can remain anonymous people and there is up to a two thousand dollar reward for this particular case thank you for tuning in this week please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine tingling hair raising eye popping episodes for paid subscribers be sure to check out the real the raw the uncensored version of why I do what I do, how and why I got into true crime, all the true crime books, and why I decided to start a true crime podcast. A lot of people think I just woke up one day and then boom, there is a microphone and there is a podcast, but that's like not even true. There is a real therapeutic message to this whole world of madness, of gore and blood and guts and stuff like that. I promise you. Just click on the past ep- the post what well, a past episode entitled "Why I Do What I Do," and you'll understand more about why I'm so into true crime. And I also want to let my listeners know that for uh, season one, uh, which was the uh, child murder season, um, six of those episodes have been selected for film production meaning production has officially begun on the video or documentary production version of those episodes. And I don't mean me sitting in front of a a microphone being recorded. No, I mean the actual dramatized version of events for these particular cases. And the very first documentary produced by Savage Life Productions will be based off of the very first episode that was featured on this podcast. So tune in because the video version will be coming to you soon later this year. And it is uncensored. I I must say that it, I got to put that right out there. I don't censor my stuff, so it is uncensored. So if you don't want to be, you know, if you don't want to know the truth and you don't want to know, um, what really happened, don't watch it. But if you do be prepared, it does come with a disclaimer. So Tune in because the video version will be coming to you soon, like I said, later this year. And while you're at it, check out the new website um, entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. And uh, Maryland is spelled MDS. 
And this is where you can access episodes one through six. You can also find uh, links to all of the uh, books that are related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1. Um, You can also find links to my local bestsellers, Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, um, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Child of Baltimore. All of these books also are um, available on Amazon. But another way to get these books from me would be to leave me a message. Like if you can't find them on Amazon and Amazon is acting crazy with the prices and all that, send me a message on the website and I'll send it to you free of charge. That's simple. Most of the books that I have are 75% of them or like um, no, I don't charge the readers. You can also check me out on the latest season of Payback, which airs on TV One. And you can also check me out on the um, Oxygen Network for uh, Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray, which she has been profiled on this podcast, too. And if you really feel like doing some digging, you can catch me on TV One's Justice By Any Means, TV One's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the uh, North Carolina child killer, Peter Moses, or you can find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I uh, profiled uh, the team killers Sarah Citroni and Jason DeLong. Once the Season 1 documentary videos are available, you will also be able to find the links to the videos here and also at another location that I will probably make public in uh, the next season, uh, Season 8. Um also be sure to tune in next week where another gruesome another high profile homicide occurring in maryland it will be profiled it will be examined and it will be discussed on maryland's most notorious murders this has been a savage life production